I've titled my sermon this morning, God Placed People in Paradise. We started a sermon series last week titled, God's Good Creation. That's the theme. And with a sermon titled, God Made Paradise. Today we're going to look at God putting people in paradise. I mentioned in my sermon last Sunday, my intention is to simply read the Bible and preach from the Bible the way God has given it to us. I do not want to to try to sensationalize or make it say something that sounds catchy or embellish it or add or anything like that. Preaching God's Word should never in any way shift or focus our focus away from the Bible to all kinds of human ideas and so on. We should always stick to the core of the teaching. What does God want us to know from this passage? We read in the Bible what God did and how beautiful it all was in the beginning. But we also know right now we're not living in this beautiful place that God started out with. But creation is still very beautiful. At the present time, there's a lot of things that are not right with creation, but it doesn't mean it's not beautiful. It is still very beautiful. And yes, there's things that are not right, and we would say it's safe to say in our world today that, well, this place is due for an overhaul, for, um, for a good rework. Paul writes about that in Romans, and the future glory of creation that God has in store. However much in need the world may be of fixing and restoring at the present time, God's creation is still wonderful, it's glorious, and it's beautiful. Last Sunday, I commented on looking at nature and looking at how God created it all. I trust some of us have had time last week to observe, to meditate on God's goodness to us and how he made everything beautiful. In fact, Psalm chapter 19, I'll read that verse. Psalm 19 verse 1 writes, the psalmist writes these words. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, the created universe has God's fingerprints all over it. It is simply glorious and majestic to observe and to watch. But that's not the greatest thing. The greatest thing that God has done, he has created human beings, image bearers, people that reflect God. Last Sunday I mentioned how I enjoy watching little children at play And the older I get, the more I enjoy it. To me, little people are very true reflections of what God has done. Little children, I like to refer to them as little people more than little children because they're people. Little people live in the moment. They enjoy the moment, not wondering or worrying about what the future holds. This last week, on one occasion, I was again privileged to watch one of our little grandchildren at play. I enjoy that, watching the little ones. I always enjoy watching the little ones. They're so full of life, just bubbling over with boundless energy. They're not worried if they're going to have enough energy for tomorrow or not. They just burn off their energy for the day with joyful excitement and abandon, not thinking about tomorrow. For them, tomorrow's another day. I don't think they even think about the other day. For myself, I've come to a point in life where I ha- when I exert myself physically, I have to consider, well, if I do this today, what will I have for left for tomorrow? The, it doesn't build up as fast anymore. But I do think this. A small person, a child, is a good picture of what heaven will be like. 
There will be excitement. There will be energy. It will be beautiful. And energy will be boundless in heaven. That's what I think. Plenty. Never a shortage. And again, Jesus does say, as I mentioned last Sunday, if we're going to get there into God's kingdom, it'll be only like children. When I said children, I'm not referring, however, to childishness, temper tantrums, and being stubborn, because every child also has the sin nature built right in, which has to be repented of later. When I refer to being children, I'm referring to the innocence, the beauty, the honesty, the genuineness, and the openness of their little hearts. When the Bible uses the words little children, the Bible refers to trust, to faith, dependence of the little people. We should respond to God that way. God made his creation beautiful, and he did it for the purpose of having it glorify him. And that's where we as humans play a huge role. We want to look at that this morning. When God created this world, we know from the story of Genesis that God put people in the world. That's what the Bible tells us. What I want us to notice about today's passage is how much the whole idea of putting people into this world was God's idea. It was planned. God's the architect of life. It's all about God, for God, through God. But today, our world as we see it for the most part does not live that way. But it's pretty much everyone for themselves as they please and sad to say, Human beings have taken over and we can actually say hijacked this place for themselves. Jesus tells a story about that, some, a parable where the, the farmers or the tenants had taken over the farm and, and they didn't want to give it back. Today, for the most part, we have taken ownership of this world as it belongs to us. It doesn't. We come and we go. We stay here for only a short while. Just this last week, as I was preparing my sermon for this morning, I was listening to an older preacher online, and he commented on something that he had learned, and I want to repeat a bit of what he said. I want to repeat it here. It was actually quite scary. He said this. He quoted a man named Jeremy Rifkin. I've got no clue who he's talking about, but he said this, and I'll quote, Jeremy Rifkin, in 1983, declared this, and he quoted, we no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior for now, we are the architects of the universe. We are responsible for nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Bone-chilling, skin-crawling words. What happens when mankind does this? And that's what's happened to our world. I cannot, be, I cannot help but be reminded of the many, many stories I've read about history, how these types of um, ideas have sprouted, gained ground, and taken over, and it always results in its own destruction. And the systems of the world today, they will not last. Whatever system people put faith and trust in, it won't work. These words I just read were spoken almost 40 years ago, but they're still as frightening as ever. The preacher I was listening to went on to mention a well-known journalist in the U.S. today who made this comment, and again, I'll quote, he said, 
Our rights do not come from God. They come from man. That sounds very much like the story of Babel in the book of Genesis in chapter 11. You see, when God gets booted out and marginalized and cast aside, it's only a matter of time before the whole thing implodes and just disintegrates like a house of cards. So this morning we want to look at what God did when it came to creating people. Remember, he said it was good. And when he created people, it was very good. Where we left off last Sunday was where God had finished creating the world. All that was still missing was people. God had finished creating the world. The next step was people. Let's begin reading the book of Genesis, chapter 1, starting verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A number of things to notice right off the bat here. God is speaking in community. That's important to note. The Bible teaches in many places that when God created this place, this earth, and all that includes, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at work. There was a unity there of community. Our time this morning would be too short to go into all the details about God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. That's for a different sermon or a different time. But we do find in the Bible in many places, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all together in this thing called creation. So when God said, let us, he's speaking of community. And then he said, in our image, he's again referring to himself as community. He wants this this, this creation called people, he wants them to be like him. He says, after our likeness. Does this mean that God looks like a human being? Well, he can present himself as one, but that's not what this means. It speaks of responsibility. It speaks of relationship. It speaks of community. Think for a moment if you would have a portrait of you. Let's say you spent a lot of money and had a beautiful portrait made of you. If you give that portrait to a friend, but that friend would just talk about the portrait, not about you, you would feel something was amiss. That's a little bit what we as humans are in this world. We should reflect God's glory, reflect God's glory back to him, but it's not about us. It's not about the portrait. It's about who the portrait represents. Let's say you would come to my house. And I would have a portrait of you. And I would just talk about your portrait, but not talk about you. You would kind of feel what's more important now. At the very start, when God put people on this earth, they were images of him reflecting his glory back to him. Things were perfect. People were not yet corrupted by sin at the beginning. Let's continue reading verse 28. God gave them responsibility. And it said, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave that first couple responsibility. Have you ever thought of it? God could have just as easily, with saying the word, filled the world with millions and millions of human beings instantly. But he didn't. 
What did he do instead? God ordained it so that a man and woman would reflect his glory, would live in relationship, live in community, reflecting God's glory to him. And in that context, would have children, and that would be a reflection of him in community. It's far too glorious for us to even to really comprehend what it all means, but it's real. And all of this was never for the sake of self, but always for God's glory. But in our world, we know it's not viewed that way anymore. It's become very self-focused at every single level. Mankind today is obsessed with self, taking control of the world and over everything, ruling over creation, sure, but not so much being as a, as a, and taking care of it as a, being a bully. And at the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve the privilege and responsibility of taking care of this place. Let's read verse 29. Continue reading verse 29. It says, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was, underlined, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This was the finish mark of God's creation. When God created people, the world was complete. Didn't need any quality control checks. Didn't need to see if it was calibrated properly. Didn't need to see if it was kind of uh, out of place. It was perfect. And God gave this first couple a job, an opportunity, and a responsibility. And it was not to solve economic problems or situations like that. They didn't need to worry about this needs fixing, that needs changing, that needs adjusting. It's nothing like that. It was basically running and taking care of a beautiful creation. So in summary, first God creates this place called earth, organizes it, structures it, sets it in motion in a way to sustain life. Then he puts all the greenery in place that is needed for food and for sustaining life. And then after he puts the animals, God puts two people whom he gives the job of increasing in population, taking care of this place. Awesome. But Genesis 1 is not all there is to the story of creation. Genesis 1 is a more of an overview, a snapshot of the bird's eye view of the story. And then we go to chapter 2. There it kind of, the writer just zooms in on a very small portion of the whole event and just kind of it's a blow-up picture, we can say, and we see something very beautiful in far greater detail than is written in Genesis 1. So let's read Genesis chapter 2, starting verse 4. And this is, again, just a snapshot. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused the terrain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going, to, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Here we have a little zoom-in point that's taken, again, at the pre-vegetation state of, of time. Earth, as it is described here, is a few, as a few verses, has no life yet. But then the writer of Genesis jumps right over all of creation, of creating a life in the, the, animal, the plant world, and the animal world jumps right over everything. Let's read verse 7. And he says in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So we know what we're made of. We're made of dirt. And remember, this is happening on day 6. Verses 4 um, to 6 is happening uh, early on, 
and then he jumps over a bunch of it, and then on day six, he's telling what happened in verse seven. That's day six. It says, and then the man became a living creature, continuing verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden. See, God does it. God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I love this story. Again, the Bible teaches where we have our origin. It comes from God. God gives us the breath of life. God designed us, and we're only told what he did, not how he did it. I mean, our time would be far too limited. Our minds are far too finite to even grasp the complexity of all the information that it would take to describe human life. Just for instance, the human DNA strand. I mean, I've read a little bits and pieces here and there, but it's just incredibly amazing how life functions. God did this by speaking it into existence. It says God breathed him in, into him the breath of life. What this tells us is all life comes from God. We as humans, we can pass on life from parent to child, but it's actually not us, it's God doing it. In the big picture, it's all God-oriented. should all be God-focused. And not just did God make the first humans, he provided a place for them. Let's read verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. You notice how often the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, it's all about him and the man and the Lord God and the man. God is at the forefront, he's the center, he's the focus, and people are added to bring glory to him. But think of it. God put the man he made into the best place of real estate in the world. It's amazing. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in a place like Eden? Paradise. He was in the garden. A perfect place. The weather was always just right. Everything was always just right. It says God put him in there for what? It says to work it and keep it. End of verse 15. Let's pause for a moment there. God invented work. God made a job. When we go to work to a large extent, I need a paycheck, so I can pay my bills, pay my mortgage, buy groceries, on and on it goes. Meet deadlines, in short, got a job to do. And for many people, a job is just to get through the week and the paycheck to paycheck, and that's not God's idea and plan of work. Imagine God giving Adam a job. What must it have been like? Imagine a job where you go to work not because there's need or because there's a problem or there's a shortage or that, that's not it. Imagine going to work because it's opportunity to have fun, opportunity to be creative with your mind, opportunity to explore new things, to invent new things, to create and to enjoy things you make for his purpose. That's how I imagine Adam as he faced his new surroundings when God placed him in the garden. God designed Adam to work. God designed us to work. That's part of God's good creation. Then we have this philosophy and this concept, let's make this world work free. I'm not saying anything against robots doing monotonous jobs, okay? I don't want to go into that field, but 
I cringe when I think, why do we, don't, why do we not want to work? Work is fun with the right attitude. It says God gave Adam a job. Work is part of God's creation. Just a side note, it doesn't really belong to the sermon, but I'll put it in here, and I hope I won't forget next Sunday because I want to speak on that. But I've often said it this way. When a young man comes to me and talks about getting married, I tell him, God gave Adam a job and a woman, and in that order. This is a side note, but if a man doesn't want to work, there's a major issue. That's anti-God-like. A man should want to work. That should, that's part of being a man. I'm not talking about women here, but I mean, they should work together, but it's God's design. If we don't want that, then there's a problem. I would say to any young woman, if you're involved with a man who doesn't want to work or thinks work should be avoided, there's an issue. But let's get back to Adam. This man, Adam, not just was he placed in the garden to keep the garden, to work the garden. He was given choices, instructions, but choices. God had created this place, paradise, in such a way that he was not on a leash. He was free. He wasn't confined inside a fence. He was a free man. He was put there true, but also free to obey and follow instructions. And there never is greater freedom than when we do what we're created to do. He was put there, yes, but he was there also by choice in the sense God said, you can do this and you just don't do that meaning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one. We'll go into it in a little bit more next Sunday, but um, the man was warned if he would eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he would die. And we know the story, of course. But. So even though it was paradise, it came with responsibility. Our world doesn't like that word. Our world does not want responsibility. We want freedom with no strings attached or freedom with no responsibility and no consequences. That does not work. And so in this context, in our next sermon, we'll continue with part of God's creation story where he creates human relationships. And they come with responsibility. But part of God's work in creating people in his image, part of that including giving responsibility to people. As I said, we want, we want freedom. Just the responsibility part, that's different. I want to close the sermon off this morning by leaving the man in the garden, a perfect environment, everything is just right. But there was not, everything was not good. There was one thing was not good, and we'll talk about that next Sunday. After God had pronounced everything good, he said that it's not good, the man should be alone, and so God's going to bring relationships into the picture at the deepest, most intimate, foundational level that they exist. But do we see the build-up here, the exciting, the glorious creation that God has made? God created and designed this world as a beautiful place. He made a garden, and in that garden he placed the man whom he had created. It was perfect. There was responsibility, there was work. But all of that with the purpose in mind that God wanted this image bearer, this man, to glorify him. God placed people in paradise because he wanted his image to be reflected in these people. Again, as I've said before, a portrait is never about the portrait. A portrait's always about the one whom the portrait portrays. So if you give me a portrait of yourself, you want me not to think of the portrait, you want me to think of you. And that's what God did when he put mankind on this earth. And I believe, and I'm jumping ahead to the temptation story in Genesis, I believe that's the greatest reason 
why Satan was so intent on getting Adam and Eve to sin because if he could mess up the portrait, he would gain a lot of ground. And when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he wanted them to do the work he had given them. So Adam was called to be fruitful, to multiply, take care of the world, and rule over it. In that part, he was made in God's image. In our day, we've drifted far, far away from that ideal. We're doing things our way for ourselves, never mind what God has instructed us to do. Just because the world is a broken, flawed place, that, however, does not mean that God has canceled his plans or erased his plans. Now it doesn't mean anything. That story is as real today as it was then. But today it's a broken, sin-marred, stained world. But we're still as much God's image bearers as we're Adam and Eve. But today we live in a different time. Today we live under the grace of Jesus Christ, where through his sacrifice on the cross, we can again live in relationship with him. Next Sunday, we want to bring the marriage relationship into the question, into this equation of creation. So what does this mean for you and I today? It means we're made for paradise. It, it means we're made for relationship. It means we're made to reflect God's glory. And in this world, it's not perfect, it's not final, but we're on our way. To some of us this week, it'll life will be experienced differently. There's billions of people in this world. God expects glory from each and every one. I want to ask ourselves this week, how are we going to do this? How are we going to reflect God's glory this week? So as an assignment, I would suggest you read Psalm 119. Let me just give you that as an assignment this week. Read Psalm 119. It's a rather long chapter. Read Psalm 119, and if you care to or want to text me and email me that you read it, that's great. If you were all present here, I would ask you to raise your hands next Sunday, but I can't see your hands. Psalm 119 is a beautiful psalm that encapsulates the psalmist's relationship with God and how he delights in God's word and delights in being in relationship with God. Today we're not physically living in paradise in the Garden of Eden. We live in a very broken place. But one day all of this will be corrected. God's going to take his church home. Jesus came to this earth once to point us the way back to God, to teach us what God wants, to teach us about his love and to invite us to repent and turn to him. Then he demonstrated that love by dying on the cross for our sins. And today, whoever repents of their sins and comes to Jesus can have eternal life through Jesus Christ and reflect that image more fully. We are made to reflect God's glory. We are made for paradise. We are made for royalty. We're made for eternity. Let's not settle for less. Let's reflect God's glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning and for the wonderful stories of Scripture. Lord, we know what you did. We know you created us. You made us for glory. You made us for your um, glory to reflect your glory back to you. But Lord, we also know the world's a very broken and sin-stained place, and so we pray that you will give us grace and wisdom and strength to follow your footsteps. And when we do mess up, we know that you forgive us when we come to you in repentance. And so help us, Lord, to walk with you. Help us, Lord, to reflect on what it means to be your children, to worship and honor you daily. In Jesus' name, amen.